0: Here the inspired, inerrant word of God. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? He was also very good-looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the stone of Zohaleth, which is by Enrogel." He also invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, but he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Beniah the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we uh, dig into it, that uh, you would use the power of your word to sanctify us and to cause us to be more conformed to the image of your son. It is our desire to please you. Uh, even with the meditations of our hearts and uh, the responses that we give uh, to these scriptures. And so we pray for your anointing upon me, uh, and that you would give uh, strength to my voice as I preach your word, and we uh, just love you. We're so thankful to you for the privilege that we have of being your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is a a well-told story of what it took to precipitate Uh, David's transition from being king to being the mentor of the next king and we speak of this time period as being a co-regency. Co-regency is uh, when the new king is already on the throne which happens uh, later on uh, in um, chapter 1 and 2. So the new king is on the throne but the old king has not yet died and these co-regencies were very common and very, very useful in in making a transition. Actually, it's one of the reasons why there's still debate on uh, the exact chronology uh, that we have in the Old Testament is because it's not always uh, easy to figure out which years were co-regencies and which were not. And in terms of calculating how old, uh, you know, from Adam to the present, we could be off by as much as 75 years. And uh, yet it's fairly clear uh, that the earth is approximately 6,000 years old. But um, uh, these co-regencies do uh, make things a little bit more difficult to figure out. Uh, But for most of this last year in David's life, he was co-regent with Solomon, basically teaching his son Solomon the ropes of, 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 of how to govern. And that's the best way to have that kind of a transition. You let the next leader gradually step into his role before you step down. Now, David actually should have done it earlier, but at least it was done. But because David was so slow in bringing Solomon to the throne, Adonijah took advantage of that, and it's very clear to me that Adonijah had evil ambition. Now, on the surface, it may have looked the exact opposite, at least to some of the people that were at Enrogel together with him. Uh, It appears that some of the people uh, appreciated the fact that Adonijah was a man of initiative, was willing to stick his neck out and take an action that really some kind of an action needed to be taken uh, during these last days. David was no longer ruling the country. He was sick in bed. Something needed to happen. And so his actions in some ways could be justified, Uh, uh, but we know that Adonijah's actions were evil from three considerations. First, God had already revealed through Nathan the prophet that Solomon was God's choice for the next king. That That was very, very clear. And I believe there's debate on this amongst commentators, but I believe Adonijah knew that Solomon was to be the next king. That's why he doesn't invite Solomon. He's the only brother that is not invited, so that all by itself shows there had to have been some evil intentions or motives uh, in his heart. Second, the prophet Nathan says that the lives of Abso- uh, excuse me the lives of Bathsheba and of Solomon were in danger. He says that later on in this chapter. He says uh, by divine inspiration. Uh, you need to do something if you want to survive so that again shows that Adonijah is more than uh, just thinking I'm the next in line I'm going to take the throne he really did have evil intentions and in third we're going to be looking at some of the evil motives that are implied in verses five through ten so we know from hindsight that this really was evil ambition but most of those things were not super obvious on the surface It would have been very easy for Adonijah to justify his evil ambitions in the eyes of others. And as we go through this first part of the story of this transition from David to Solomon's rule, I don't want to uh, let you get away with primarily applying this to other people. As we go through these principles, you're going to say, wow, I can see that in a lot of other people. But ask the Holy Spirit to show if there is at least even a tiny way in which this uh, passage applies to you or to your children and, and then deal with it. Let the Holy Spirit deal with it and put it under the blood of Christ. Now we're going to start with the word then. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. It was immediately after the events of verses 1 through 4. Adonijah was looking at his father desperately, uh, trying to keep warm in bed and not in a position to adequately rule the country, and something needed to be done. And though he may have realized that his own motives were mixed uh, to some degree, I think to a great degree, his disgust with his dad, and there was plenty to be disgusted with in those first four verses, and the crisis facing the nation both helped him to justify what he was doing. And if others thought that David was approving, and we'll get to that a little bit later on, a tacit approval, uh, then this may have seemed like a normal co-regency. So the first point is that it is sometimes easy to justify our selfish ambition and our other sins, and the second point is that it's so easy to camouflage our selfish ambition and sins, uh, camouflage it from others. Why was it that so many people did not recognize that what he was doing was evil? When you look down at verses 8 through 9, there were a lot of people, and they were good people, who were going along with what was happening here. Well, the text highlights, I believe, six things, six reasons why the sin in Adonijah's actions might have been camouflaged. And even seeing these few dynamics here, I think, can help you to counsel your own children. The first point is that he had good reasons for his ambition. Uh, verse 5 identifies who he was. It says, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And then verse 6 says, he was born after Absalom. So the author is highlighting the birth order. Uh, if you look at the chronology, you'll see that uh, the firstborn was Amnon, and he's dead. And then the secondborn was Chiliab, he's dead and the thirdborn was Absalom, he's dead. So Adonijah is the oldest surviving son of David. So purely in terms of birth order, you would expect that uh, Adonijah would have the rights of primogeniture. For this young upstart, Solomon, to be preferred before him just did not seem proper. He probably thought that he had good reasons for his ambition. He might have thought that his father is just not thinking straight here. Now, the second camouflage listed is that in one sense he is being a hero. He he was providing a solution to a troubling situation. And you might liken it to kids who take away the car keys from a parent who is beginning to be senile and not driving very carefully. And even though it's a tough thing to do, people generally appreciate such an action. In effect, the immediacy of Adonijah's action after seeing his dad unable to even keep warm in bed is to say it's time to do something. No one else is doing anything, but as he steps up to the plate, others get behind him and they breathe a sigh of relief. And so from one perspective... It would be hard to criticize Adonijah. Now we can do it because we've got the whole inspired text behind us interpreting this, right? But you've got to understand they're seeing it, not in terms of the whole picture. <clears throat> the third camouflage listed is that he hadn't hidden the fact that he had ambitions. Now it's odd to call that a camouflage when it's out there in the open, but sometimes those are the best camouflages. Um, but sometimes, well let's take a look at verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king, and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. Now commentators assume that uh, he, he just told Joab and Abiathar that he's going to be king, he's willing to be king, but the actions here are done publicly. It seems like he was testing the waters with this retinue to see what his dad would say. And I sort of liken it to a kid who, you know, he's not supposed to touch a no-no. And he crawls over there and sees what his dad will do, and he puts his finger out, and he's looking at his dad, and his dad doesn't say anything, so he touches it. And, uh, you know, maybe even after he is disciplined, he thinks of other ways to get around this. He may go over to that no-no and pick it up and run over and give it to his dad You know, like this is a gift. He's doing a great thing, bringing this no-no to dad. And uh, I don't know why it is, but it seems like uh, the kids have little calculators going on in their heads to figure out what percentage of disobedience can I get away with. They will submit ninety-five percent to see if the parent will do anything with the five percent. And if the parent says nothing, then they'll try to get away with ninety percent or seventy percent obedience. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of how kids will camouflage, even open, disobedience. There is the child who has trained his parents to have repeated warnings. The parents tell Billy to put away his toys, and he just ignores uh, the parent. The parent comes back into the room, chews the kid out, and says, Billy, I told you to put those toys away. And he says, okay. And then a third time, the parent comes back and says, how come you haven't put... Well, I'm going to do it, you know, but I still need to do a couple of things. No, you put those toes away right away, and it's only after the fourth warning that Billy gets disciplined. Well, that child is training the parent to, uh, you know, have repeated warnings and bargainings and threatenings, and this child has figured out, okay, with this parent... Uh, I can get away with three procrastinations. After the third time, I might get disciplined, so I'm only going to ignore them three times. He's obeyed, but the mixture of slowness reveals a disobedient heart. Here's another example. A parent tells his five-year-old son, son, I want you to look at her and say, thank you, Mrs. Black. And uh, the child looks at the floor and mumbles, thanks. Thanks. And if the parent lets his 50% obedience just slide by, the child has partially been successful in training his parents to ignore some rebellion. Now maybe the parent repeats the command in a more forceful tone, and now the child is willing to give 90% because he sees danger on the horizon. He's willing to give 90% obedience, but is still going to hold 10% obedience for himself. So he glances up for a split second at the person looks down at the ground again and says thanks now most parents accept that kind of a compromise even though it's not complete obedience it's not thank you mrs black and it's not looking at her yeah he glanced up and it is uh, enough though for them to be satisfied or at least they don't want to press the issue but that ten percent leeway gives a wild card to that child And that child will use it more and more. There are adults who refuse to give God total control in their lives because they've been trained by their parents that less than an immediate 100% obedience is an okay thing. Okay. The fourth camouflage is wrapped up in the one that we've already looked at. It's that David's lack of confrontation could have been interpreted as approval. Verse 6 says, and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? Uh, Such failure to disagree begins to be interpreted by Adonijah and by others as at least tacit approval. Now the parent may claim that he's never approved of, of these actions, but by failing to deal with the problem head on, he has tacitly done so. And when parents ignore rebellion in their children, however slight it may be, all it does is it grows and it becomes much more entrenched. According to Psalm 131, and if you doubt this, you have to read the psalm yourself, but according to Psalm 131, all rebellion, all petulance, all disorder, all rebellion should have been trained out of your child by the time he is weaned. and Back then it was three years of age. By the time he is three years old. Uh, But certainly, we should not be waiting for years and years to deal with rebellion. If they have not figured it out by three, really there needs to be boot camp training where you just go through the same things over and over and over again until those kids get it. They get it with the right attitude and a good facial expression. Otherwise, both parent and child will have developed such bad habits over those years that it will never get dealt with. So by testing the waters, not receiving any negative rebuke, Adonijah had camouflaged his sin. The fifth camouflage of his evil actions was that he was uh, quite good-looking. Verse 6 goes on to say, he was also very good-looking. You've probably seen this in toddlers. Uh, They look so cute in their disobedience that the parents will laugh it off or maybe even say, how cute! And you think, what? (laughs) You're letting that child get away with that. What they have done is they have camouflaged the ugliness of disobedience with their cuteness. And it does seem to be true that the good-looking kids with high EQ tend to get away with a lot more than the petulant kids uh, who have low EQ. When the disobedience is wrapped in cuteness, the parents ignore it. The last camouflage of Adonijah's actions is familiarity. Now, it's only hinted at in verse 6. It says his mother had born him after Absalom. And the very mention of Absalom reminds us that David has been permissive. He's been a permissive parent with all of his children. It wasn't just with Adonijah. We've already seen this in the growing up years. He was permissive. But familiarity with rebellion makes it begin to become invisible to the parents. I know people who did quite well with their child's uh, discipline, child number one, because it was so in their face that they could see it and they dealt with it. But by the time of the third and the fourth child, they're completely oblivious to what their children uh, are doing. Their children can be involved in sneaky rebellion, meanness to others, breaking things, or even outright bold, open rebellion, and the parents are oblivious. In fact, if you point it out to them, sometimes they'll get offended, but sometimes they're just plain surprised. Uh, They did not see it. They've become used to it through familiarity. And so familiarity can be a camouflage of sin uh, to certain people. And so verses 5 and 6 actually give a lot of fodder that you can discuss as parents on how you can beef things up in this coming year uh, within your family so that we do not become like David became. I think everybody agrees he was way too easy on his kids. He he did not discipline as he should have. And when we see these camouflages beginning to be exhibited, we need to nip them in the bud. But Roman numeral 3 says that's easier said than done. Easier said than done. A lot of times you can suspect rebellion in your child, but you have a hard time putting your finger on it. If you accuse the child, he has plausible deniability. And so the root issues are even harder to deal with than the outward manifestations of those issues. If outward manifestations can be camouflaged, that's point number two, how much more so the root issues that are underlying them, and that's Roman numeral 3. So let me read verses 5 through 7, and let's look at some of the root issues that lie under the surface. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, "'I will be king.' And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, fifty men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, "'Why have you done so?' He was also very good-looking." His mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. Now there's obvious pride in verse uh, 5. In fact, some commentators label it as arrogance. Arrogance is simply a particularly rebellious form of pride. Now we know he had pride because the text says he exalted himself. Okay, that's a synonym for pride. But pride is a slippery, slippery thing to confront. Uh, There was a period when our children were very young. uh, In devotions, we were going through just a few of the contrasts between the pride, uh, characteristics of pride and characteristics of a broken or a humble heart. And it was an amazing thing to see that our children had 20-20 vision when it came to seeing pride in other people. They were almost totally blind. the pride in their own heart at least initially Uh, the Holy Spirit did begin to open their hearts and begin did begin to uh, bring conviction there but pride is hard to expose and yet it needs to be dealt with at a young age and that is where we parents must be so dependent upon the Holy Spirit for the training of our children we cannot do this on our own we are simply tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit So pride, that's the first root issue that needed to be exposed but was really very difficult to expose. But selfish ambition is another one. It sometimes masquerades as service. Now, I've already mentioned the little child, you know, who picks up a no-no and gives it as a gift to his dad. I've actually seen a couple of our grandkids uh, do this. But some parents are unwilling to discipline the child who does that who is purportedly serving. They're looking so excited when they bring this no-no to you that they don't want to uh, dash their spirits. But that is wrong thinking. We've already seen that Adonijah was offering to fix a problem in verses that existed in verses 1 through 4 by being the king. He was willing to serve. Now, it's the inspired text that informs us he had evil motives for serving, but his offer to be king was in some ways an offer to serve. Well, that makes it a little bit harder to confront. And I'll tell a story on myself uh, from when I was a kid. Uh, My sister Minna and I were uh, walking along at our mission station in Ethiopia. And it was a hot day. And I happened to notice out of the side of my eye a particularly huge and juicy pile of cow pie. And the land was sloped such that it was a little bit hard to see it. And I don't know what got into me, but I just thought, you know, Minna, the sun is so hot and you've been walking so long, you need to rest a little while. Why don't you come and rest under this tree over here? And I sat myself down beside the cow pie and sat her right in the cow pie. Now, I was such a present-oriented thinker back then, it didn't dawn on me the... uh, uh, Problems I would be creating for myself. You can't hide that. (laughs) She was slimed from uh, keister to foot uh, with that that cow pie. But here was a situation where I, I don't know why she even didn't suspect that something's going on when I'm all of a sudden so solicitous of her welfare, but I'm pretending to serve, pretending to be interested in her welfare all the while having very evil uh, motivations. My point is that this camouflage of the heart, uh, the heart's sins through service, cannot be overlooked. The third thing that can make it hard to expose sin is a person's station in life. Now, in this case, self-indulgence is hard to confront because Adonijah's station may have made it seem excusable. Did Adonijah really need all of those chariots and those horsemen and that retinue of 50 people running in front of him? Uh, I doubt it very, very much. Did he really need that many bodyguards? Now, some people might But I doubt that Adonijah did. He was doing this, as we saw earlier, as a testing. You know, it's a king who needs a bodyguard. Well, he's going to be king. This is a testing ground for him. I doubt that even David had that many uh, bodyguards around him at, at all times. But this extravagance might be excused because he can afford it. He can afford to blow that kind of money on servants. Now let's translate this self-indulgence into modern terms. Just imagine that you're billionaires. Billionaires can afford things that uh, you and I cannot uh, afford, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of your labors. But self-indulgence is sin, whether it is found in a pauper or whether it is found in a billionaire. But it's much harder to demonstrate that it is self-indulgence when you find it in a billionaire only the Lord is going to know the heart But let's quickly do an exercise let's pretend you're a billionaire you're gonna go out and you're gonna buy one or two cars and I'm gonna give you the 2014 prices for these cars and all of them are way out of my price range and as I list these off realize that even billionaires must be stewards of their money and ultimately their money belongs to the Lord so here's the question is this pure self-indulgence, which is a sin, or is it the wise stewardship of money? Well, you could argue either way in some of these situations, and only the Lord might know for sure whether it was self-indulgence, but here are the cars that you as a billionaire have considered purchasing. Mercedes-Benz a CL65 AMG Coup, 215,500. A Bentley Mulsanne, 298,900. A Rolls Royce Phantom Extended, 298,900. Ferrari F12 Berlinita, 315,888. A Porsche 918 Spyder, 845,000. Hennessy Venom GT, uh, 1.2 million. Or a Lamborghini, 4.5 million. One of my sons actually thought he saw a Lamborghini uh, two or three years ago here in Omaha. And, you know, I wouldn't criticize a person who was driving a Lamborghini and judge their heart motives. Maybe it had been given to him as a gift, and it would be insulting to sell it, you know. So he's going to use this gift. I don't know. But I think I myself, even as a billionaire, would feel guilty using uh, uh, purchasing uh, a Lamborghini. But it would be hard to accuse anyone of self indulgence if they did that. A person's station in life and his wealth can sometimes camouflage what might be otherwise clearly seen as self indulgence. And the reason is that there could be good reasons for a billionaire to own some of these vehicles. And there could be good reasons for Adonijah to need bodyguards to make his travel safe. The fourth camouflage is given in verse 6. Verse 6 shows that Adonijah's lack of restraint was due in part, he still, it's his own decision, but it was due in part to David's failure to ever restrain his sin's sinful passions. And his father had not rebuked him at any time. Now, literally, his, he had not brought pain to him at any time. It's dealing with discipline, okay? So he has not disciplined his son. No outward discipline, which led to Adonijah's lack of self-discipline. So that's the problem, but it can also become the excuse. You know, you look at some of the different schools of psychology that take away the blame from the individual, put it on the environment, on circumstances. Freudianism puts it on your parenting. Uh, So the parents get the blame rather than uh, the child getting the blame. Well, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter how many mistakes your parents have made. A son's choice is still a son's choice, and he cannot blame it on the parent. Now, the other camouflage to sin is given in the next phrase. He was also very good-looking, and we've already dealt with the fact that good-looking people can sometimes uh, get away with uh, more than The less beautiful counterparts. It's a weird thing. I've seen it in kids. I've seen it in adults. Uh, When I was in my 20s, I worked at a job where people were rather crude, but I, I was amazed at how some of these people would stand at awe, in awe of a beautiful woman with an ugly personality and not give the time of day to a plain woman who had a beautiful personality. The package sometimes can make people oblivious to the contents inside, whether it's virtue or whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, evil. The last camouflage of root issues can be seen in verses 7 and 10. <clears throat> now, Adonijah's um, deceit might have looked like prudence now verse 7 says then he conferred with Joab the son of Zeruiah and with Abiathar the priest and they followed and helped Adonijah but in verses 10 and following it becomes clear that Solomon Nathan, Beniah, and others didn't even know about Abi- Abiathar's plans he was doing this behind their backs So there's a degree of deception going on, but given the state of David's health, uh, his choice of Solomon to be king, the king's obvious dislike of Joab, the needs of the nation, etc., it may have seemed like prudence to not be talking to them rather than deceit. And the reason I've drawn out all of these different points is that our children's rationalizations can make it exceedingly difficult to expose their sins. And this is where... The work of the Holy Spirit is so necessary. Lord willing, next week, uh, we'll see the role that Nathan the prophet had in bringing the Holy Spirit and his instruction into uh, this situation. But all of us have exactly the same Holy Spirit to work with us in our parenting. The Holy Spirit is the counselor. He's the one that gives wisdom. He's the one that sanctifies. And it is foolish to think we can do parenting without the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people treat uh, their children as if they're just rats to be trained, okay? If we do these things, out will come. It's just like ingredients. You mix up these ingredients, out will come a dessert. But it is still possible for children to masquerade their sins And we will not be able to expose them. We'll not be able to see them. We have got to be people who are on our knees in prayer, pleading with God and saying, Lord God, I need your wisdom. I need the wisdom of Solomon in my life. I I need you to dig beneath the surface in my children's lives and help them uh, to grow. These verses highlight to me why we parents must be in prayer. Now, I was grateful when I was a child uh, when... Sin and rebellion actually broke forth and got exposed. A lot of people—that's when they get frustrated. No, I'm th- I'm saying thank you, Lord, that this came out. Now's the opportunity to deal with this, and uh, to now disciple, discipline, instruct my children in righteousness. If it had never broken out, there wouldn't be the opportunity uh, to disciple them in that. And if you want a book that gives you some good tips on how to take advantage of these opportunities and why you shouldn't be frustrated when that happens, read Paul David Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity, A Biblical Guide to Parenting Teens. But there's one more lesson I want to highlight from this passage on rebellion and selfish ambition. You've heard the expression, birds of a feather flock together. When you see your children always attracted to rebels there may possibly be something wrong inside that needs to be dealt with. Now, the sin in your child's life may be far less than the same sin in that other person's life. Uh, But the fact that your child tends to be attracted to such people may indicate the trajectory of the heart that needs to be confronted. And of the two people, Abiathar and Joab, Joab was the far more obvious of the two. Verse 7 again. Then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, with Abiathar the priest, and they followed and helped Adonijah. I've mentioned before that demons who tempt us to any given sin, say murmuring or complaining, are likely tempting other people as well. And if they're successful, those demons aren't just going to be content there. They're going to try to spread this. They're going to try to get these people uh, together. And it is amazing how quickly two rebels can find kinship with each other. I've seen this in groups over and over again. It's just like, boom, they see each other, they're talking with each other. You wonder, how in the world did that happen? I believe it's because the same demons that are working and tempting these people in these directions are also encouraging them to get together Now, I think that A.W. Pink gives a very perceptive comment on this verse. He said, Characters like Joab and Abiathar are ever actuated by selfish motives, though individuals like Adonijah often flatter themselves that the service of such is rendered out of love or esteem for their persons when in reality very different considerations move them. Disinterested loyalty is a rare thing, and where found... It cannot be valued too highly. Those in eminent positions, whether in church or state, are surrounded by mercenary sycophants who are ever eager to turn to their own advantage everything which transpires. It matters nothing to Joab and Abiathar that their royal master was a pious and faithful one who had steadily sought the good of the kingdom or that Adonijah was a grasping and lawless semi-heathen. They were ready to forsake the one and espouse the other. So it is still. That is why those in high places are afraid to trust the ones nearest to them in office. But laws of harvest work, and uh, selfish ambition always ends up destroying the people who refuse to repent of that. We'll see that later on in chapters 1 and chapter 2. It comes back. It's a deadly snake that comes back uh, to bite them. And so even men of selfish ambition who seem like they have gotten away with it, Alexander the Great, or even in the Bible, Alexander the Coppersmith, and what was it, 2 Timothy chapter 4, people say, oh, they get away with their selfish ambition. No, it always comes back eventually to bite them. Now, we have seen in past sermons that ambition can be a good thing. It can be the righteous opposite of apathy and laziness. But selfish ambition is ambition that has become unglued from a God-focused passion for God and for His kingdom and for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When ambition is not wrought by God and focused upon God, it can become a very dangerous thing. And so it's my prayer that each of us would examine our lives for even the smallest trace of selfish ambition. And if we see it, to confess it as sin, to cast it aside as a filthy garment, to ask Christ for the cleansing of His blood, and to ask God to give us a God-oriented ambition that is passionate for His glory and for His kingdom. Amen. Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, and I pray that we would learn even from the mistakes of others and that our children would learn from our mistakes as parents Uh, that we would not always have to repeat these uh, same mistakes generation after generation. Uh, We pray that you would indeed continue to sanctify us by your truth to cause us more and more to be conformed to your image. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.